Would you pray along with me? Father, we know you to be what we just sang, a great and awesome God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways. And because we know you to be that God, we know that what must be true is the best, safest, perfect place for us is in the center of your will. May we be a people that press on toward that goal. Lord, we look forward to the ministry of your spirit in this place as he illuminates the word to our hearts by the power that is provided to us through your son's death for us. And it is in his name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Please have a seat. As Jesus was walking along with his disciples, he said, so who do the people say that I am? What is the world saying about me? And they said, some say that you're a prophet, Elijah, and some say you're a king, and some say you're all these, and then he turns and he, you can almost picture him going, huddle up. And he asked them the question of life, but who do you say that I am? Because what the world says about him doesn't matter. Frankly, what your family says about him doesn't matter. What matters is, who do you say that he is? And does that match up with scripture? And so Peter pipes up and he says, he finally gets one right, and he says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus pats him on the head, and I'm adding a little to the translation, and says, well done, because the Holy Spirit revealed that to you. But then he says this, and upon this rock, what rock? The, Peter's profession that all of the promises of God find their yes in the person of Jesus Christ. Upon that rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we're in this series called Upon This Rock. And we started out talking about what a disciple is, and then we talked about what a church is supposed to be. And then that moved us into the toolkit proper and, the, and how the toolkit lays out and just as a way for us to get into the word, to get the word into us and to get him out to other people as you've already heard great stories about that even this morning and I loved that time um, this morning um, as we worshiped in seeing how he's moving in our midst. And, and so we talked about the things of God. Are people even, how do you even determine if someone's interested in talking about God? And we talked about things like the tough questions. Why is there evil? And can we trust the Bible? And we went through that. And then we talked about what, what is the mission of the church and engaging in the call. What does it look like to go out and engage as Dan was talking about this morning? And then we moved into things like, well, what is the gospel? What is this story that God has been telling from beginning to end about Jesus? And how has that been revealed in his living and active word? And we talked about the word, and we talked about how prayer is our ability to have this ongoing conversation with the Lord. And then last week, Don taught on the power of the Holy Spirit, that he doesn't leave us here, Jesus does not leave us here as orphans, but he sent his spirit to indwell us. And all of those things kind of come together to this point that we're at today, and that is knowing God's will. Because we need all of those things I just said in our lives in order for us to know what God's will for our lives is. We cannot know the will of God without having the spirit of God, without being in conversation with God, without being in the word of God, without knowing what his mission on the planet is. 
How can we possibly be in his will if we don't know those things? So God has brought us to this place on purpose this morning. Now, if you get nothing else out of the time I have today, get this. It's in the toolkit, so you don't need to write it down. It's in the toolkit. Dan read it. It is the will of God that the Spirit of God take the Word of God and conform the people of God into the image of the Son of God. We're going to read that together. Ready? It is the will of God. Wait, we're going to do better than that. It is the will of God that the Spirit of God take the Word of God and conform the people of God into the image of the Son of God. That's what God's about on this planet. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. So we're going to talk today about, because you say, okay, that's all great and wonderful, Pastor Doug, but how do I live God's will for me? Because I'm just sitting here today trying to get through this morning. If you had a morning like I did, that might be just all you're here for this morning, is how do I just get through today? And the answer is, how can you do it and bring God's glory? So open your Bibles up to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a sequel to one of David's great psalms, Psalm 51. Psalm 32 was written by David after he writes Psalm 51, which is a psalm of confession. We'll talk more about in a minute. But we're going to look at Psalm 32, and we're going to see how can we live God's will for us. And the first thing we have to recognize, and our first point this morning is, we have to recognize that our sin separates us from God. The gospel starts there, and so... David starts there, so we're going to start there. So look at the first point. Our sin separates, and we need to see that. We're going to look at the first four verses. He says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. And then there's this little word, hopefully your Bible has it, Selah. You know what Selah means? It can mean pause, stop, refrain. It really means rest. It is this place of peace. It's, it's because the, this psalm is a song. It was meant to be sung to music. And sometimes the most powerful part of a song is when the music stops for a moment and there's this pause of silence. And you're anticipating what's coming next. Right? And if there were no pauses, imagine music that never had a pause, that it was just one long run-on sentence. It'd be a little bit like my preaching, just really fast, a lot of verbs, a lot of blah, 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 and I don't know what to do with that. Sometimes we just need the pause to see God's greatness. And so David writes this first part, and he says, how, he starts with how blessed is forgive, the forgiveness of God. But then he goes on and he says, but when I kept silent about my sin, I was in agony. And it brings him to a place of like, I just got to take a moment your translation might have, started trans, might have started verse 3 with, instead of the NASB just says, when I kept silent, the ESV actually does a, a little better um, act, translation. It says, for when I kept silent. 
Here's why that's kind of important. Because that four, when I kept silent, connects to the four in verse four. For when I kept silent about my sin, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Why was God's hand heavy upon David? Because he sinned? No, because he didn't confess his sin. And that was what he was, was why God's hand was heavy on him. Guys, God cannot bless us. We cannot be in his will if we are in unrepentant sin. Now guys, I, I want to be, be really clear about this, especially if you're fairly new here at Cornerstone, because you probably haven't. I'm not talking, we, we are all sinners. None of us are grace graduates. Just because we're covered in the blood of Jesus does not stop us from sinning. It does stop sin's power in our lives, and it does keep us from the eternal destruction that we deserve. That's not what I'm talking about here. When I'm talking about unconfessed, unrepentant sin. I'm talking about the kind of sin that we all sometimes will have in our lives where we know it's wrong. I know the right thing to do, and to him who does not do it, James tells us, it is sin. I'm talking about that kind of sin. When I know I'm not supposed to do something, or I know I'm supposed to do something, and I decide, because God tells me to, and I don't want to do it. And then I continue in that sin and don't take it to the Lord. Guys, we, God will not bless that. Why won't God bless that? Why won't God bless you in those times of unrepentant sin? Because we'd never leave them. Imagine the teenager who spends, and you don't have to be a teenager to have this be true to you, so I don't mean to bash teenagers because there are a lot of 30-somethings that are too busy doing this too. You spend all day on Instagram or Snapchat or playing video games, and then your parents come in and go, hey, here's a new car. Is that teenager ever going to stop doing that? No. Why would they? Take it away. Let's just say, gentlemen, you, 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 because football season is going on, you neglect, I mean, but church attendance in America drops during the NFL season. Drastically. So, so dad, you spend all NFL season neglecting your church and your family for the NFL season, is, is God going to, at the end of that season, go, hey, here's a brand new 64-inch 4K television? Just because. No, why? Because we'd never stop watching football. It's not until we come to him and go, Lord, you, I know you already see this, but I need to bring it to you. Because it's separating our ability to communicate. It is, it is what the Spirit, it's what the Bible calls and what, what Don talked about last week. It is grieving the Holy Spirit. And our interaction with God does not stop. He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He does not turn his back on us. But our ability to hear his voice diminishes. So how can we be in his will if to be in his will we need to hear from him if, if our ears are plugged because we have this unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives. Isaiah says that our sin has created this separation between us and God in Isaiah 59. Jeremiah says, your sin has robbed you of all these good things. What good things? God's presence is what Jeremiah is talking about. David writes in Psalm 66, if I had cherished or clung to iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But guys, this is not just an Old Testament thing. 
It's not just, well, yeah, but that was before the cross, and now it doesn't really matter because Jesus died. No! 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Right? 1 John 1, 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But I get ahead of myself. Guys, part of why we don't want to see sin separation is because, one, we like sin. And two, because we don't get grace. We don't understand grace. We don't understand the first part of the psalm, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. We don't understand how in Colossians 2, if you remember in Colossians 2, Paul talks about you you were once dead in your sins, but God made you alive together with Christ when he took your sins, put them on his cross, and wiped them clean. That's for, that's the reality. Guys, that's why we, there's no reason for us not to bring our junk to the Lord. One, he knows it all already, and two, he's dealt with it. Jesus didn't go, bring it all to me, Father, except that one. He said, bring it all to me. And he did. And that's where David goes next. So how do we live God's will for us? First, we have to get that, we have to see that our sin separates us. Second, we have to break the barrier. Look at David, look what David says in verse five. So here's, remember, remember where David finds himself. He's, he's been caught in adultery and murder. He's written this Psalm 51 where he's confessed it all to the Lord and he's still kind of dealing with this. And he says here, I acknowledge my sin to you. See Psalm 51, you could say. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's the power of confession. That's the barrier being broken. Guys, don't hide your junk from God. He knows it and he's dealt with it. Bring it to him and taste his grace. Guys, if you remember, if you remember the scene in Isaiah, Isaiah is such a great book. I, I loved when we went through it several years ago. I'd love to teach through it again because it's just such a great book about God's grace. But do you remember in, 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 God, in, in Isaiah's call, and I've, said, I've shared this scene a lot, but in, in Isaiah's call to ministry, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, I saw the Lord holy and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you remember what, what that caused Isaiah to respond in? He sees the holiness and glory of God. What does Isaiah do? He steps back, I am undone. Woe is me. Why? He says, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. What is he doing in that moment in light of what we're talking about? Confession. He's like, I see the holiness of God. I see how far short I fall and I'm confessing that reality to my father. And you remember what one of the seraphim that's flying around the throne does? He brings these tongs, he takes a coal out of, the, out of the throne of God, and he comes down to Isaiah and he touches his mouth and he says, you are clean, your iniquity has been wiped away. Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he confesses his sin, and God heals him. Do you see what, his, what is Isaiah's next response? Verse 8 of chapter 6. Because God says, so who are we sending? Who should go for us? So this, the triune Godheads gathered together, they're huddled up. Hey, what are we doing? What, what, what should we do in the world? What does Isaiah say? In view of God is holy, I'm a sinner, I've tasted his grace, what does it compel Isaiah to do? Here I am, send me. 
Guys, when we taste the grace of God, when we, when we're, when we're, when we trust him enough to bring our junk to him and, and really see that his grace is sufficient. It just is. It will compel, and we taste that grace. Guys, we will be compelled to go. We can't not go at that point. That's what happened to Isaiah. Guys, I'm not going to have you turn there in the interest of time, but in 1 John, I mentioned 1 John 1, 8, and 9, talks about if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In the beginning of chapter 2 of 1 John, so 1 John 2, it says, if any of you do sin, meaning we do, John knows that, he sinned too, you have an advocate with the Father. Do you know what's interesting about that? Is the advocate, he's talking about Jesus, the, we think of an advocate now. Many, some of you have adopted children. You had an advocate for that child. It's somebody who stands in the place of that child. But here's what's interesting. Jesus is not just the lawyer that argues our case for us. He wins it. But he doesn't win it by going, man, you know what? They're really not as bad, Dad, as you think, as, as you think they are. Th th this kid is really better than you think. He says, Dad, Guilty as charged. Doug is as big a sinner as I have ever seen in my life. But guess what, Dad? I'll pay his penalty. That's our advocate. That's all of the difference of Christianity from every other religion in the world. It is not clean yourself up and maybe he can plead your case before the Father because you've really gotten good enough that, that, that he doesn't have to argue that much to get you in there. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, yeah, he's guilty. Yeah, you're guilty. You're guilty as charged. It don't matter. You know why? Because Jesus says, dad, I'll take the price. I'll pay the price. I don't want to nullify the grace of God by not living in that. Jesus broke the barrier. He tore the veil. It is finished. But sometimes we want to stitch that curtain back together. We want to, we want to figure out how to, how to like at least just maybe just leave a little hole there that the Spirit can barely work through because we feel like we have to somehow work out our salvation or because we want to hide from God. So we put that veil back up when Jesus died to tear it. So how do we live God's will for us? First, we have to confess our sin. Guys, that's the first thing. We, ha we have to come and be honest with God, right? Confess our sin see, because we see that it separates us from him. He broke the barrier. Trust him to break it. And then you have to believe his will is best for you. You have to believe his will is best for you. Guys, and that goes, our first two points directly connect to the rest of the psalm. Here's how. Because when we confess our sin to him and we see that his forgiveness is, is never-ending, we trust him more. The more we trust him, the more willing we are to walk in his will. And David says this in, Psalms, in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, God, in the time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Confess my sin. 
When I was silent about my sin, I was a train wreck. So I took my sin to the Lord. He forgave my iniquity. And now he has become my place of refuge, my hiding place. Guys, God's will is our hiding place. God's will is the best, safest place we can be. Regardless of what our circumstances are, our worldly eyes and our all-too-worldly hearts tell us, God's will is our hiding place. That you, have, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, if you know David's life, guys, you know that, that David did not live a charmed life. Right? In fact, if you remember... In the scene that led him to Isaiah 51 and then on to, or to Psalm 51 and then on to Psalm 32, what happened? He commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered. Nathan the prophet shows up and says to David, busted. David confesses his sin before the Lord. Does that absolve him of consequence? No. How, one, how do we know? Well, because Bathsheba got pregnant. The baby is born. The baby is sick. For a week, David is fasting and confessing his sin before the Lord. He is on his face, flat on the ground, praying. The baby dies. His, his advisors, you can almost picture them, they're like, um, you want to go tell him? No, I don't want to tell him. He's the king. He could lop my head off. Look how grieved he was just when the baby was sick. What's he going to be like when we tell him the baby died? This is all in 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you want to look it up for yourself later. David hears them whispering and he says, he's dead, isn't he? They said, yes. He gets up, he dusts himself off, and he worships. What got David off the floor? Grace. Grace is what got David off the floor. Did his prayer get answered the way he wanted? No, the baby died. It's not that he stopped caring. It's that in the midst of all of that, he tasted the grace of God. And guess what? Bathsheba gets pregnant again and gives birth to a son named Solomon. And that son is in the line of Jesus Christ. That's grace, people. In a relationship born in adultery, God says, you know what, that's the line I'm going to have my son come through. That's what got David off the floor. Grace. He's able to write, David's able to write in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He does not mean he will give you what you ask for. Obviously, because God didn't. He means God will get you asking for what God wants you to be asking for. That's what giving you the desires of your heart looks like. When we start asking God for the things that he already wants us to have, we know we get grace. So, how do we live God's will for us? We see that sin separates, we break the barrier, we believe his will is best, and then we trust him to take the next step. Guys, let go and let God is not in the Bible. Sitting back and doing nothing, because I'm just praying about it, is not in the Bible. I love how Gary prayed at the end. Let's not just sit here and, and listen to all the good news. We got to go. 
we got to take a step. we got to get our feet wet before he'll part the waters of our Jordan. Look at what David says. The voice now changes here, and the commentators are a little iffy about whether this is David speaking or this is God speaking. I believe in the NASB, I think, at least in the way they, the way they write it, it says that this is now a transition to like God actually speaking in this passage. Now, and you think about it, if it was written as a song, and I don't know music, and my daughters can tell you the truth, like, this could be like, would it be like a bridge, or a refrain, or a chorus, or a verse, I don't know. But imagine, like, he's singing this song, and this, this bridge might just come up over and over and over again. And often in a bridge of a song, I think are the parts that I like the most, usually, because they have such powerful truth in them. And here's the bridge of this song. I will instruct you, this is God speaking, and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So don't be like a horse or a mule which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they won't even come near you. But I love how he says, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you. Guys, those are all in the present tense. Those are ongoing actions. He's not saying, I did tell you what to do, go do it. He's saying, I will tell you in the moment what you are to do. I will instruct you in the moment on what you are to do. I will counsel you in the moment on what you are to do. That's our God. That's the Holy Spirit that Don taught on last week. You're reading one of your daily readings in the toolkit last week, Isaiah 30, 30 verse 21. And your eyes will behold your teacher, Jesus. And your ear will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. I think our biggest problem with doing the will of God isn't that we don't know the will of God, it's that we just don't want to do the will of God. We want God to do our will. We don't want to do his will. And so that keeps us from being in his will. And, and we use as an excuse, well, God's just not showing me what to do. Really? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's something you could do. Just do that while you're waiting for the big stuff. Children, obey your parents, for this is the first commandment of a pro of, of, with a promise. Just do that before you start worrying about the big stuff. But I think we, we want to worry about the big stuff. The question becomes, what will bring him glory? Guys, God's will for your life, and here's the kicker, is his glory. Not yours. Not mine. The problem is we get caught up in the world's way of defining success. We get caught up in how, in, in, in how we talk about the bless, God blessing our business. And what we mean by that is we have more money. The Bible never talks about that. Not in that way. The blessings of God are, 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 all, are almost never connected to finance or numerical growth. Oh, our church is really being blessed. What do we mean by that? Well, it's growing numerically. That's not, that's not even what Jesus promises. But we get, I get caught up in that. We all get caught up in that. Guys, the word of God will transform our minds and the spirit of God will direct our steps if we let him. If we'll just let go of our will to be in his will. So our last point where David kind of brings us, how do we live God's will for our lives? 
the biggest thing we need to do and our biggest struggle is we need to leave the results to him. We need to take the next step by his word and by the power of his spirit, but then we need to leave the results to him. Look at how he finishes up. Verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all who are upright of heart. But he who trusts in the Lord. Guys, you can read that. He who lets the Lord lead. He who lets the Lord lead. Look at the, look at the blessing of fruit that comes from that. He who lets the Lord lead, loving kindness will surround him. You say, but wait a second. Pastor Doug, I, I've been doing that. Man, you, I've been here at this church for however many years and I've been reading and responding and, I've been, and, and, and I don't really feel like the loving, I don't feel like my circumstances are very loving kindness of the Lordish. Here's the problem, I think. We have, it was, it was what I was alluding to a minute ago. We have completely flipped what, the loving kindness of the Lord looks like. So I'm going to take the time. I know we're, I know we're running over, but I'm going to take the time to, to share with you the story of a life completely, not perfectly, he was a sinner, completely lived in the will of God. So we can all get a glimpse of what the will of God, what living in the will of God looks like. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus shows up to Paul. Jesus has already died, been crucified, rose again. He comes back. Knocks Paul down. Paul was Saul then. He was persecuting the church. This was around 35 AD, about two or three years after Jesus died. Saul has been persecuting Christians. Jesus shows up in his life and he becomes the Apostle Paul. And he spends the next 20 plus years making disciples and planting churches, which is the mission of God. That is it. Any organization that is, not, that is professing faith in Christ that is not about making disciples and planting churches is not really on the mission of Jesus Christ. Paul does that for 20 plus years like no other human who has ever lived. He was living in the will of God. Was he a failure? No. We wouldn't be here today had Paul not been obedient. And yet... 20 plus years later, he writes 2 Corinthians, and in chapter 11, he lists, here's what the will, here's what living in the will of God looks like, people. Five times I got 39 lashes. This is 20 years of living for the Lord. Three times I got beaten with rods. I was stoned, and he's not talking about getting high. Three times I was shipwrecked. One time all night and all day at the sea. Many long journeys. Dangers from rivers and, rivers and robbers. From people and places. Sleepless nights without enough to eat. Cold nights with nothing to wear. And then, he's, and then he's like, and on top of all of that, I have this massive burden that I carry for all of the disciples that I've made and all of the churches that I've planted. He's like, man, this is just, this is what 20 plus years of living looks like. And then he immediately goes to this point of saying, but I would rather boast about my weakness. Because when I am weak, God shows himself strong. We're going to close with this. Find this spot in your Bible. The T's are all together, so it's pretty easy to find. At the very, towards the, towards the end of your Bible, in your New Testament, in 2 Timothy, 
chapter 4, 10 years later, Paul writes these final words of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's in prison. He's for, for more. So, so since, he, since that list I just read, he's been imprisoned at least two more times. This is 10 years later. So he's saved in 35 AD. He writes that list in around 55 or 57 AD. This is now about 65 or 67 AD. 30 years of living for the Lord. He finds himself all, if you read 2 Timothy, all alone. Everyone has deserted him. He has nobody left. He knows he's about to get executed. Was his life a failure? What's our problem? Our problem is perspective. We think he didn't, because he didn't die rich and loved on by thousands of people, somehow his life is a failure. And yet, he says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready. He, he goes, a man who had given up and said my life was a failure would not say, keep teaching what I taught. Right? Unless he was some kind of sadist who just wanted everybody else to suffer like him. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. For a time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away the ears from both the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, enduring hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Guys, I, I, this is what I want. This is what I... This is what I want said of my life. When it's my time. For I'm already poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. Guys, as we take a minute and just respond to his word, what you've just heard, I want to ask you, are you living a life truly thankful for his grace? Because you've confessed your junk to him and you just see how sufficient and unwavering his gracious love is for you. Are you living a life because of that that is as your first importance being lived out for his eternal glory? Because if you're living a life of true thankfulness to God and desiring to bring him eternal glory, you are in his will. Rest in that. Just rest in that. I close with this part of this poem that's in your bulletin. 
It's by a man, a missionary who lived in the 1800s, and it's called, Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I will say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life was burned out for thee. So Father, I thank you for the truth that the best place we can be is in the center of your will. I thank you for the reality that your grace is sufficient. And I pray for those right now in this place that have not tasted of your grace because they think that they can hide their junk from you or they don't know they even have any junk. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them your holiness, that they would see their utter sinfulness and recognize that there's, got, there's only one way out of that mess and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And for those of us that have tasted of your grace, but maybe we let our taste buds get a little polluted. I pray in the next few moments that you would wash us fresh and new, that we would bring our junk to you, knowing that your grace is sufficient, that you desire for us to come to you with it. And Lord, once we do that, you will, by the power of your spirit within us, take your word and direct us that we might live for your eternal glory. We want nothing more. In Jesus' name, amen.